0: taken by Liz's sister the other day while she was visiting. I thought it was just a great way to capture Liz's uh, and James's heart uh, for the relationship really well. And uh, I thought I'd just start out today by doing something a little different. Uh, Is the clicker working? Uh, I'm wondering, like, uh, what is one thing that your mom did to bless you? Anyone want to... Share with us one thing. It could be something simple or something elaborate. One thing. Yes, Helga. How many of you know how Mother Day, Mother's Day was started. Does anyone know who this woman is? She is responsible for Mother's Day. Her name. I'll just put this here. Her name was uh, Anna Marie Jarvis, and she was a woman from West Virginia. Jarvis was a Christian woman who, during her Sunday school lessons, as a little girl, found inspiration for just such a day as Mother's Day. As Anna grew up, she continued to nurture the idea of creating, quote, a Mother's Day. And in 1908, three years after the death of her own mother, Jarvis held a ceremony in honor of her mother and all mothers at her local church that the idea of such a day grew in popularity. So much so that by 1914, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson declared it a national holiday. But soon, uh, uh, national holiday, soon nations around the world followed suit. Canada has not recognized the day as a national holiday, but it is nonetheless celebrated here along with an oppressive array of countries around the, world, the globe and for and, uh, some form of celebration. And as you can imagine, because why not we live in the times that we do, uh, the validity of Mother's Day is being questioned. Uh, I don't know if you saw these two articles. These came up two days ago in the CTV News. One said Manitoba School scraps plan to alter Mother's Day and Father's Day. And, one, and another one, controversy after Quebec teachers replaced Mother's Day with a celebration of parents. Going on in the article, it talks about the idea that the reason why these schools initiated the idea of getting rid of Mother's Day and Father's Day in the first place. They said, quote, it can be difficult for kids experiencing loss, but be, be it through devo- death, divorce, or difficult or estranged relationships. When we have these days, they are specifically designed to commemorate those people in our lives, and we don't have them. We often feel very left out, we can feel very alienated. Sanders believes celebrations like Mother's Day and Father's Day need to be more inclusive to all family structures. And so, uh, as you read it, I was reading this article, and the very first thought that I had is I can totally understand where they're coming from. As a pastor, every time that there's a holiday, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's Valentine's Day or Christmas or Easter or Halloween or Mother's Day or Father's Day or Independence Day or Canada Day or Labor Day or whatever day it is, I always wonder, you know, should the church recognize those days? Should they not? And what what's going on? And all this kind of thing, and I just... It, there's a real wrestling that goes on in my heart about it, and I just want to walk you through uh, a few reasons why. Number one, it's, it's the consumerism. Prior to uh, COVID, some $21 billion in the U.S. was spent on cards, flowers, and gifts. Lady, only 60% of that were gifts for moms. Interesting, eh? Many gifts are spent on wives and even girlfriends. I know many guys who feel pressure to find a gift not only for their mothers, but also for their special ladies. Any any, uh, men want to say amen to that? (laughs) To to neglect their wives on this day would be a fatal mistake. Yeah, it would. Uh, Gifts now range from anything called flowers, cards, chocolates, to items of home decor, rings, and necklaces, The other reason is there's a lot of hurt that centers around this day. There are people who want to be mothers who are not mothers who find this day painful. Women who have lost mothers, women who have had bad mothers. and I've had one person say to me that going to church on Mother's Day is one of the worst days in the year because of the hurt. Then there's, of course, the practicality of it from my standpoint. There's moms that just stay home on Sunday. Amen? You may have had a breakfast in bed and there's a part of me that goes, what's the point in taking time in church if they aren't going to be there to celebrate? There's that aspect. And then there's all these holidays that we celebrate that aren't in the Bible. Are we And there's the question about whether we're becoming too much like the world, right? Do you understand what's going on in my head when we come to Mother's Day? And then there's that big question that I struggle with the most. If Mother's Day isn't in the Bible, why even mention it in the first place? Anyone kind of resonate and understand my line of thinking with this? A little bit, yeah. Well, these are the things that struggle with, but I am... Out of all the things that I struggle with, I, I want to let you know that I still think that it is a day that the church should recognize. So without wanting to alienate everyone, anyone, and while acknowledging that there is no biblical mandate to celebrate such a day, I want to give one reason why we as Christians should recognize Mother's Day, especially in the cultural climate that we are in. This comes from Proverbs 31, 28. And speaking of mothers, it says this. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also. And he praises her. I think that we should acknowledge Mother's Day because the Bible says that children are to bless their mothers. and So much so that I don't even have to argue that it... Uh, blessing your mothers or honoring your mothers makes it into God's top ten. And I even want to point out too that it doesn't say honor your mothers if they're good mothers, honor the mothers if they're godly mothers, it just says honor your mothers. So I think that means even if we feel like our moms didn't do a great job, we should honor them. And so to think about it to do today, what I want to do is, if you want to think about it, this sermon is for everybody because no one is neglected on marginalized this day. All of us have mothers, and biblically, men and women, boys and girls, are called to honor their mothers no matter what. I am overwhelmingly grateful that my first lessons in prayer came from my mother as she knelt with me next to the bed and taught me how to pray. I remember her concern for my clothes, my eating habits, my problems in school, and her way of making me know that I was loved. And so to honor her today, I think, is a a way that we can live out biblically. So I want to honor moms today by sharing with you a story of a mom who encountered Jesus. So I hope this is a blessing to you. You can open up your Bibles, and I would like to read from you from Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to look at verses 20 uh, to 23. And I just want to share with you a few reasons why I think moms are blessed through this encounter. And I want to say right at the outset, the most practical thing for every single one of us to do, regardless of whether this is a day that's hurtful or whether it's a day that's not, is we can say thank you to our moms. Okay? So let me read. This is a mom's encounter with Jesus. This comes from Matthew chapter 20, and it goes like this. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came with them, with her sons, and kneeling before him, which is Jesus, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? The the mother said, said to him, say these two sons of mine, are to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? They said to her, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not for me to grant, but it is for those from whom it is being prepared to by my Father. And when the other ten disciples heard this, they were indignant, of the two brothers. Let's pray. God, thank you for our moms. Thank you that they are so loving and kind and that you've created them for a special role. So as we come here today, God, uh, let's pray that you would open up the text and make it clear to us what exactly is, is going on in this text. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. So let me just explain what's going on in this story really quick. So you can understand what is going on. So uh, if you would talk to your grandparents or, uh, about how they broke up the war, they would probably, at least my grandparents, so they would probably say things like, well, before the war, the world was like this. And after the war, the world was like this. Okay? We kind of do the same thing with COVID. Is, is like, a lot of us go, well, before COVID, things were like this. And, but after COVID, things were like this, and so they kind of saw the world and broke up the world in that in that same way. To Jews, it was the same sort of idea. They had the world world after the kingdom, and the world before the kingdom was a disaster. It was filled with. Destruction and poverty and bad stuff, and yet the idea was is that God is going to bring about His kingdom and make everything better. And what this mom is asking for is, when that happens, can my two sons sit at your right and left? Can they have some sort of authority? Can they have some sort of? Can they be in second or third command? And and so that's sort of what is going on here. But, But and so you and I actually might look at that and say that's that's kind of bold and gutsy. And ridiculous. But before you dismiss or ridicule her requests, I want you to notice a few things about this woman. And the first thing is, I want you to understand her posture. This woman is kneeling before Jesus. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to to him with her sons. And what does it say? And kneeling before him. She asked him something. The, li- the world is literally divided up between two kinds of people. People who, are, who kneel before Jesus and people who don't. Our country is divided up that way. Our province is divided up that way. Maybe even there's some of us in this room that are divided up to this way. And this woman, she's kneeling, and that is actually to say, Jesus, you get the place of authority. You get to be in control of my life. You get to be in control of my money, my marriage, my kids. You get to pick where I live. You get to pick what I watch. You get to pick my control over what I eat, my diet, my sleep, my work, my dreams. You get to control about my worldview, what I think about the government. You get to tell me how I think, my worldview, and how I, live, how I live. I kneel before you, Jesus, and I let you have total control of my life. And, the, the, and there's only real, really two camps to be a part of. And there, this comes part of her life where the Bible calls us to be a part of one or the other. And this is really cool. This woman recognizes this, and she bows the knee before Jesus. And I actually just want to say that the godly mom bows the knee to Jesus. And so our, my question to you is, are you living like that today? So let's run through, uh, let's continue on. It says this in verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him something. So here's this mother, and I, I guess the idea here is that she's kind of playing the role of mama bear. She's, uh, she's, uh, she gets passionate about she kids, she's fighting for her kids, she's She's trying, she knows that her kids need Jesus, and so she's being assertive, and she's wanting to get them to, to hear it. And I really like this. this is what, let, me, let me explain this. And what I've really noticed about moms is moms can be all kinds of personalities, but when you uh, talk to them about their kids, they fight for their kids to the, to the nth degree. I remember uh, just uh, James is kind of at this age now where he's wrestling with his dad, right? He's like, Dad, I'm going to destroy you. And then, like, the couch, that we, the nice couch that we bought becomes, like, a wrestling match ring, and we try to get him, and then, and then I get him in a headlock, and I say, you can't get out of this, right? And then, you know what he does? He calls for Mom's help, right? <laughs> He's like, Mom, help me! And then all of a sudden, it comes in, and I've never seen Liz fight so hard for James before, right? She's going in, and she knows, like, the weak spots and the pressure points, she's like, get out, get off. And, and then she's like, don't, don't get between me and, and James, right? That's kind of the picture that this mom is, right? She's asking Jesus for something. She's being assertive. She's fighting for her kid. And then what goes on in the story is, is that Jesus asks a question. In verse 11, it says this, what do you want? And I really love that about Jesus, because if you notice in this passage it's not, only the, what the, it's, it's not the only time he asks this question. The story after this, he actually, uh, he actually heals two blind guys and he asks the same question, what do you want? And I love that about Jesus because what it says is that Jesus is a caring God. That he's not like, what do you want? Like you're bothering me. But he's actually a God that takes the time to care and love us and actually care about the details and the small things that are going in their lives. So he just kind of... Blatantly just to ask the question, what do you want? And so she answers by saying to him uh, this. Say that my two sons of mine sit at the right and one at the left in your kingdom. And you know what she's doing here is that is that she's saying, she's saying that the most important thing I can do for my kids is to get them as close to Jesus as she can. Now I'll address her motive in a minute, but what she is doing is the most important thing. She recognizes that even though she's bold, even though that she's strong, even though that she cares for her kids and she's going to fight for her kids and be a servant for her kids, she knows that the best thing that she can do is bring them as close to Jesus as she can get. And I want to say that that is the idea of moms. Moms, the most important thing that you can do is to get your kids as close to Jesus as you can. This is important for every single one of us as moms and dads. The most important thing about your life is that if your kids aren't in orbit of Jesus, that you try to get them as close to Jesus' orbit as you can. Because because here's, here's the reason why. We tend to function as if we are the most important uh, people in our kids' lives. But I'm here to tell you you that one of the greatest honors of motherhood is that you have to try to help your children love Jesus more than they love you. Now, that's not saying that they can't love you, but you've got to get them to love Jesus more than you. Why? Because one day you are going to die and you're going to be gone, and you're going to leave your kid vicariously living their faith through you, not having a faith of their own. The person you need to fight for to get your kids to love is not you, but Jesus, because even when you're dead and he is gone, he is still the hope of your kid. Not having a good, and so here's what I said, the main, the thing that you need to understand is that As important as having a good family time is, it's not the most important thing. Not building sentimental memories, not going up to the cabin every other week because you, quote, just got to build in your kid. You can do that every single day for the rest of your life and live your kids without their understanding of their need for Jesus. That they need to connect to the God of the universe that transcends death and that will take care of them. That when you're gone... That's what, this month, they, that's what they understood about their moms. I've got to get my kids to love Jesus more than me. I've got to get my kids as close to Jesus as I can. The most important thing you can do as a parent is fight hard for your kids to bring them as close to Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe very strongly that the Bible lays out that the that the. Father is the head of the home, that he is the, head of the, uh, the, he's the household leader, sacrificing for the family, praying for the family, on his knees for the family, loving the family. You're, God gave your man a mission and a battle to fight for your kids, to bring them close to Jesus. And you, as your moms, are the help. But I just want to say this, is that when the Bible says that you are the help, That doesn't mean that you stand there and do nothing. A lot of people, and I want to park on this for a minute, when they see that God has created women as the helpers, they see that as a misogynistic term. Okay, That it's demeaning, that it's small, that it doesn't mean anything. But I want to say to you that if that is your understanding of what it means to be the help in your family, then what you've done is you've allowed the culture to dictate what Scripture says rather than what the Bible says. Because here's the idea. You and I, we grow up, we live here in Alberta, we watch news or we watch our Instagram reels, And we watch Fox News or CNN or whatever you do and you live here and there's an entire worldview that is being built in for you so that when you read this passage of Scripture, there's this underlying narrative that says that when the Bible says that women are the helpmates, they are somehow smaller and the Bible is demeaning towards women. And I want to say to you that that is not the understanding of Scripture for you. That you're more valuable to God than that. I was just looking up this word, I'm trying to pronounce it right. So the so the word for helper is there. Try to say it with like that kind of throaty thing. Heyzer, everyone try it. Heyzer. And you know what is so interesting that I found out about that word? The same adjective that describes women as the helpers is used to describe God as the helper. Exodus 18.14, he said that my, father, my father's God was my what? Helper. He saved me from the sword of the Pharaoh. Deuteronomy 33.26, there is none like God, O Jeruhan, who rides through the heavens to your what? Help. Through the skies is his majesty. With, with your hands contends for him, and he will be your help against your adversaries. Psalm 70, verse 5, but I am poor and needy. Hasten to me, O God, you are my help and my deliverer. Psalms 89, 19, O old you, uh, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one. And he said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen one from the people. Psalms 115, 90, O Israel, trust in the Lord he is their hope and their shield. Psalms 115 100. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is the help and their shield. Psalms 115 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Do I need to go on? I kind of think I do. Psalms 121 1. I lift my eyes up to the hills from where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who is the maker of heaven and the earth. Psalms 124, my help is in the name of the Lord, who is the heaven and the earth. Psalms 146.5, blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord the God. I hope you're seeing a pattern here. Okay. Because when the Bible speaks of God as our help, most of the time, and I want to say probably about 80% of the time, when it uses that word, it's, it's, it's this idea of God coming in as the rescue. Okay? That he is coming in as the preserver of the life. It's this idea, if I, if I could paint a word picture for you, it would be that he is the reinforcement to your battle okay he's the guy on the left the cavalry, the reinforcement that turns the tide of the war it's this idea that um, you're in a battle and you're in a fight and it's not going good for you and in fact you're you're on the brink of defeat and when it says that he is my hope and my deliverer it's this idea of him rushing in as the cavalry at the very last second but not just the, the idea that he's the reinforcement. He's the guy that changes the tide of the war. So I was trying to think of a good word picture, and I'm really sorry, moms, for, for, for this analogy because it's, it's, it's nerdy and it's guy, guyish. But um, if I said, on your left, do you guys know what movie I'd be quoting from? Captain America or uh, Avengers Endgame. And there's this scene in this movie I, please, please don't hate me and send me an email after this. But there's, a, there's this scene in this movie where Captain Mira, he's fighting the bad guy. And it's him, and he's all alone, and he's on the brink of defeat. And he's just kind of standing up, and he has this vast army in front of him. There's no one else. And then on the radio, he hears this something. He hears this phrase. He says, On your left. And all of a sudden, there's a massive amount of reinforcements that, you know, appear out of nowhere, and everyone's screaming in the theater and all this kind of thing. It's it's, it's very geeky and nerdy. But it's, it's that idea. It's the idea that when you are in your most dire hour, when it looks like you're in the brink of death and defeat, that Jesus and God comes in, riding, and he comes in as the rescuer, as the defender, as the guy that reinforces and turns the tide of the war. Okay? So you know what that means? It means this. This is why I'm spending some time in this. Okay? If that's what it means for God to be called our help, then calling women helpers is an honor because it's a sacred term. Do I hear an amen to that? Amen. It was never ever ever meant to be an insult. And I want to tell tell the moms and the women in the in this church or listening online, that's a title that God reserves uniquely for you and not for men. To be the helpers. So listen, man, listen, mums. Here's what I mean. God has given your man a mission, and that mission is to go in battle and fight for your your children's uh, childrens and to be the one that leads the home well, to bring the kids as close to Jesus as he can. And along the way, the battle isn't going to go well for him. He's going to fight that battle alone at times because. He's going to be knocked down and beat down. And he's going to get he's going to feel like giving up and he's going to look out at the world in front of him and he's going to see a vast army of 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 angels and demons and principalities and uh, the rulers of this dark world that are standing between him and making sure that his children can get as close to Jesus as he can. And I want to say that when it says you're the helpmate, what I think that practically looks like is that the mothers are coming in as the reinforcements for the battle of your children. Okay? It means it doesn't mean that your guy is standing there fighting for his family, leading the family, and you do nothing. It means that you're in your in the trenches with them, praying for you, praying alongside your, your husband for your kids, loving your kids well, treating them well. You are in the trenches with your with your husband fighting for your kids. And when your husband is at that point where it's where he feels like yeah, I can't do it anymore, I want to feel like you're giving up. You're kind of that reinforcement. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, There is a study, there's three studies that happened in the last 10 years in Canada. One called hemorrhaging faith, and that's kind of the bad news one. That kind of one looks at why our kids leave church. And so the result of that study was you could do everything right, and about 80% of our kids, after they graduate, will stop following Jesus within the next two years of high school or uh, graduation right the next one that came out in 2015 called Re-ne- renegotiating faith and it looked at the opposite end of the question why do young people stay in church why do college age people stay in church and, you, and found, you know what the answer was do you know what the answer was why do college age students stay at church after high school oh come on church It's about mothers, can you you connect the dots? It was about the parents. The kids that stayed in church said that the reason that they still believe in God after high school is because they experienced the faith at home. hear that? It's not just that their parents taught them, here's the Sunday school lessons and here's the Bible lessons, that they actively saw their parents' faith alive. And because they experienced God moving in their home, they said that there must be something to it. There must be something real. So it's not enough. What I want to say, parents, is, just on a sideline, it's not enough for you to say trust in the Lord or trust that God will provide financially for you or your provisions. What, it, what, what does the trick is when they see that truth lived out in your life, then when they're adults, they go, I saw that, and no matter what the evidence is to the contrary, I experienced it in my parents' faith. My parents' faith was real, therefore I'm trusting. So listen, if you want your kids to pray, don't just tell them about the importance of a prayer. Pray with them, okay? So what wound up happening is the result of that study led to a third one that just came out three weeks ago. And it was funded by Family Life Canada, Focus on the Family, Awana, a bunch of Christian denominations, and it just asked this question. How do we help parents form the faith of their children? And you know what? It's 265 pages. (laughs) I'm not going to read it all for you. But I'm going to give you a, one summary thing that they said of this. And I want you to hear this very clearly. It says this. When talking about who, um, who forms the faith in the home, this is what they said. Across Canada, this is, this is what they would survey. They said this. There seemed to be a gender imbalance in faith formation of children where moms were more engaged than dads. Dads, we're going to talk about that, but not today. Most of our parents' survey sample identified it as complementarian. So if you don't know what that means, that means that they believe that there's distinct roles between men and women in the home and the church. However, we found that in many cases, their complementarianism was more nominal than functional. In other words, across Canada, it's the mom's who are doing the heavy lifting when it comes to the kids. It's the moms that are doing the bed night, bedtime stories and the Bible stories. It's the moms who are asking the question, answering the questions when their kids come up and say, what happens after a life of death and who created, and who is Jesus and all that. It seems like the moms are doing the lifting. And you know what? That's because you're the reinforcement when the guys aren't doing it. Okay? You're the helper. Okay? Don't ever let anyone tell you that that is a demeaning term, ever. And that, trip, that that reinforcement idea of you coming in and helping in the midst of when things aren't going so well, that is old as the Bible itself. 2 Timothy 1.5, I remind, this is Paul and he's writing to Timothy and he's reminding Timothy about his mom and his grandma. And he says this, I reminded you of your sincere faith. A faith that first dwelt in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. And so uh, here's what I want to say with this. Timothy is the product of a blended family. Timothy was the product of, of a home where he had a believing mother and an unbelieving father. That's why Paul did not say that Timothy learned the scriptures from his father. Because he didn't. His father didn't believe them, but his mother and grandmother did. This is what Paul is referring to in this verse here. So let's make it very clear. Paul the apostle of Jesus Christ in this text bestows a great honor about motherhood. And I think that this is a strong woman. This is where God is holding Eve accountable, where he's calling Sarah to big things, Esther to big things, and Mary to bring things. Motherhood should be honored. Now, going forward, look at what Jesus responds. Going back to our text, in verse 22, he says this, Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And so here's what his answer is. His mom comes and says, can my two sons have a place of power? And Jesus here, when he says, you don't know what you're talking about, can you drink the cup that I'm drinking from? What he's actually referring to is the suffering that he's about to go through on the cross. And he said, you want to be close to me? Okay, here's where i start. Here's the thing. I'm going to go through a crazy amount of suffering, and so I need you to be ready to go through it. Like, this is the opposite of the prosperity gospel. So if you want to come to Jesus, it's not this idea that come to Jesus and you get rich and, and uh, he, Jesus doesn't do that. He comes out of the gate and says, if you want to be this, you're going to have a cup of suffering. And that's what is going to take place in your life. And are you able to handle that? And I love this. Guess what the response is? I love this. This is so cheeky. What do you think they say? We're able. Okay. We are able. And we know what this said to me. This says to me that this mom made resilience more important than safety. I love that. Jesus goes, Okay, bros, are you able to handle this? And they go, Yeah. That's got to be because the mom instilled that. This mom braced their kids for a world of suffering. And if we want to get our kids close to Jesus, we have to train them to being resilient and suffer as well. We have to teach our kids that, they will, that if they want to be close to Jesus, they will suffer in the Christian life. Okay? That, they will, that they're, the following Jesus doesn't mean they're immune to financial hardship or sickness or persecution. In fact, that same, same study came out and said this. It said that parents expressed worry about many things, mostly what they saw as the negative influence of the culture and state. I'm sure that many of you could could resonate with that. But listen to what it says here. It says that 64% of parents surveyed either moderately or strongly agreed that they were concerned that their children will experience religious persecution in which country? This one okay. friends, it's not a question of if our kids will suffer, it's a question of when they will suffer and I'm going to argue to them to you today that they will quite likely experience religious suffering in a way that you yourself have not experienced. How do you train your kids for an experience that you have, you yourself have? no knowledge of this mom trained their kids to to be to be ready for a world of suffering and i think those those are the reasons why we should honor our mothers because this mom regardless of her motivation we we'll can get into motivation for a minute she was. She knelt before Jesus. She fought for her kids. She wanted to get her kids strong, uh, closer to Jesus, and she taught her kids the value of suffering for Jesus as opposed to be safety for their kids. Okay, and I think that's why the Bible puts honoring the father and the mother in the top ten. Okay? who is worthy? Who is called to such a task? Your moms. But before we close, I just want to give a caution to the mothers, and it comes from Jesus himself. He says this. After Jesus, they said, we can. He said to them, will you drink the cup? Will, he said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who have been prepared by my father. And when they heard this, the other 10 were indignant. So I've been asking myself why this woman in particular wanted her, her sons to be as close to Jesus as possible. Like, why? Why? what was the motive? And here's, here's what I want to get at before we close tonight. What is the motive, the underlying motive in the story for her getting close? What is the reason behind the reason that she is bringing her kids uh, to the right and left of Jesus? And, and quite frankly, the only answer I could come up with is that it's power. They wanted to get... She wanted her sons to get as close to Jesus as they could because of power. It wasn't... Because here's what happens in the next story, right? The next story, it's these two blind guys and they go, they run up to Jesus and Jesus asks the same question. What do you want? And what was their response? I just want to see. I just want to see, why wasn't that the question that the mom asked? Why is it that they had to be at the, uh, 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 the position of power? Why wasn't it just like, can you just save them? And I think the reason is, is because there's an underlying motive of wanting to be there in power. And I want to say this, is that not every single person brings their, peop- their children to church simply because it's the right motive. Okay? Sometimes people bring their, their kids close to church we're close to Jesus because there's an underlying motive. Well, I don't want my kids to turn out bad, right? Or I don't want to be looked on as the only mom with the kids that are rowdy, or I think it's good for my business, or I think this. And so what I want to say is that Jesus kind of exposes this. He kind of says, it's actually not for me to decide, okay? I don't know. they Are you going to still follow me anyway? And so what I would want to say is, is like when you... Why do you want your children to be close to Jesus? Is it because you want them to have a safe life for a good life? Or is it because that you know that they are in need of a Savior? That you love them? So today, I think that the most, the best thing that we could do today is honor our moms and say thank you to moms for all the hard work they did. Amen? Amen. Uh, Ken, do you want